Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle. Well, this week may be seen by historians, one hopes not, but it may be seen by historians as a turning point when the U.S. made a pivot away from world leadership because the Congress was unsuccessful, the president was unsuccessful, rather, in getting Congress to agree to funding for Ukraine. Volodymyr Zelensky made a special trip to try to lobby the members uh, on behalf of his beleaguered country, but it certainly fell on deaf ears with some parts of the MAGA right. For example, Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, who said, these are people who would cut Social Security, throw our grandparents into poverty. Why? So that one of Zelensky's ministers can buy a bigger yacht. Um, Obviously not a serious argument, but first I want to ask our guest, Megan McArdle, do you think, Megan, that this is a pivot away from world leadership on the part of the United States? I think that's a risk. You know, I think that Republicans have just kind of reflexively started to say, well, why should U.S. provide leadership? Why shouldn't we just sort of stay home and gaze at our navel? But that said, let me qualify that, because I think Republicans are are saying that a lot less about Israel. Not none, but less. And I think that that actually sort of highlights the ways in which the very specifics of an individual case can make things look like more of a general problem than they are. And so what do I mean by that? Specifically, this is about Ukraine, right? And this is all Russia and Ukraine is tied up with all of the Trump stuff (laughs) that Republicans are still mad about. And so I think if this had been a conflict, possibly in another area, it's hard to imagine what that would be. The response might have been different. I think that's actually what we're seeing with Israel is the Republicans are quite gung ho about supporting Israel. Republicans, you know, hauled three university presidents in to Congress in order to yell at them about not suppressing pro-Palestinian slogans enough. And so I think there is a risk for Ukraine. And I think there is a risk that that will badly damage us on the global stage. I like to hold out hope that we're actually going to do something, that we're actually going to get a border deal that should have been made anyway, frankly, because I think even though I don't want to restrict immigration, I think politically that's where the United States is heading. And politically, that's where the Biden administration is probably going to have to go before 2024. And so they might as well get aid for Ukraine and bolster America's position on the world stage as a trade. Linda, this came up last week when uh, Bill Galston and I, and I don't remember, maybe you two were saying, yeah, Biden should cave. He should seek a deal on the border because the border politics are terrible for Biden anyway. And this way he can just say, well, the Republicans made me do it. And uh, it would have been a win-win. But I don't know. I mean, do you have a sense that the Republicans were willing to take yes for an answer? I mean, no, I I don't think they were. And I think that 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 is my problem. Look, some of the things that the Republicans are asking for would be really bad. 
uh, to limit the president's power to engage in humanitarian parole would be a disaster. That is how we got 70,000 Afghans into the United States. It is how we allow the Ukrainians who are already here and some who have crossed the border since the war began uh, to be able to remain. And getting rid of the president's authority to do that would be bad, and not least because Republicans have been unwilling to pass the Afghan Adjustment Act, which would give Afghans who are here, people who helped us during the war, a more permanent solution. So that would be terrible. There do need to be changes in the way we deal with asylum. Clearly, some of the people who are coming are not asylees in the sense that they are trying to escape from state persecution on the basis. Yeah, Linda, I'm sorry. Can I just ask you to do a quick elevator explanation mm -hmm. of the difference between refugees and asylum seekers? Because I think there's a lot of confusion about that. A lot of people don't understand. Ref the refugee program is one that is long established, goes back to, I think, 1980, Actually, people who come here as refugees have been vetted. Most of them have been in refugee camps or under the supervision of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And they're usually fleeing war or natural disaster, right? Absolutely. And there's a number set that Congress sets each year. How many people are we going to admit? Mm -hmm. Now, when Trump was in office, uh, he basically admitted no one. Very, very small numbers, but Biden has increased more. And those refugees, by the way, when they come, they get federal aid. They yeah. get help with housing. They get uh, some substance. And they're allowed to work. And they are allowed to work. So it's a very different program. Asylees are people who are in imminent danger. In order to claim asylum under the current law, you have to do it from the United States. So you have to set foot except for some changes that the Biden administration made that allows you to begin the application process before you get here. But you can't actually claim asylum uh, until you're in the United States. And generally what happens is you have to have a credible fear of persecution by the state because of religion, because of your politics, or because you're a member of some sort of a persecuted group within your home country. And what the Biden administration has tried to do is to tighten that up a bit by, first of all, not having everybody just rush and show in. And by the way, you can claim that up to a year after you've entered the United States, even if you entered at not a port of entry and without documentation. The asylum system is clearly being abused. Mm -hmm. I mean, the people who don't have legitimate fear of persecution, who are really just economic right. migrants. Right. Yeah. Okay. Not by the state, right? That that's right. Or they're or they're being, you know, they're being hounded by you know narco traffickers or others. You know, that was not what the asylum process was set up. But what they're trying to do is take away that right and raise the standard so it's not just a credible fear. But some of them are pushing for something that would say it's more likely than not that you're going to be persecuted. And all of these things would be judged in front of an immigration court. And this is the real stickler. There are two million cases waiting to be judged, various cases, not all of them asylum cases, but we don't have enough uh, immigration uh, judges, and the Republicans aren't willing to put more people in place. So they just want to be able to have the person who first encounters applicant for asylum to be able to make a yes or no answer and to send them back. 
Now, we have other ways of sending people back, and we send about half or more than half of the people who show up undocumented under Title VIII of our immigration laws, and they can, in fact, be removed. But the other thing that the Republicans are asking for is to expand expedited removal, where there is absolutely no check to make sure that the person who is is coming across has no claim to be able to be here. And they want to push the border for that, which right now you have to expedite a removal is only available within about 100 miles of the border and in a few specified cities like Chicago and, and others that have large numbers of immigrant undocumented people who go there. They want to make it nationwide. And the problem with that is It's not going to be abused under Biden, but if Trump is elected and those changes are made, he will use it to deport people, some of whom who have been here literally for decades, because it will apply nationwide, and those people will be removed without ever going into an immigration court. And by the way, in 2021, 70 United States citizens were deported under expedited removal. So this is open to a lot of abuse. And that's why, you know, people are not just jumping up and down saying, yes, let's make this deal. So Bill Galston, you wrote a column this week saying, you know, Biden should call the leaders to Camp David for the weekend and iron something out. Since you wrote that, do you still feel that way? Or do you think that the Republicans really just want the issue and don't want a deal? I don't know, Mona. All I know is that if the president wants to save a linchpin of his foreign policy and save our nation's honor, he should leave no stone unturned in an effort to come up with a deal. I don't even understand my own party anymore, let alone the Republicans. What I mean is that you know my own party, the Democratic Party, acts in ways that I find it increasingly difficult to understand. I really don't understand what they were doing with crime and immigration in 2020. Mm -hmm. I don't understand what a substantial portion of the Democratic Party is now saying about the Middle East. Uh, But that's a different point. What I'm saying is that I think there's reason to believe that the Republican leadership in the Senate, starting with but not confined to Mitch McConnell, is made up of people who may be willing to listen to reason. I think that the president should do everything to test that proposition before he throws up his hands in despair. And frankly, I think President Biden owes it to the country because it's the White House's drift on immigration policy that has helped bring us to this moment. I am not a happy camper. And I'll say one other thing. I agree with many of Linda's specifics on the defects of Republican proposals. But when I compare that to the prospect of four more years of Donald Trump, it's a no-brainer, Yeah, right? This issue could defeat Joe Biden all by itself. That's the point. Do we really want to take that chance? I don't. Damon, if the United States turns its back on Ukraine... Who in the world would be judged the winners and who would be judged the losers? Well, (laughs) it would be a, a really monumental shift. I mean, I think it would be one that also could be folded into 
a kind of lack of resolution that we've seen going back quite far. And by resolution, I don't mean by any particular president necessarily. What I mean is basically ever since uh, the end of the George W. Bush administration, there has been a kind of rather dramatic flip-flopping from administration to administration as the presidency is handed off from party to party on foreign policy where, you know, Obama comes in and he's running as the guy who opposed the Iraq war and he makes a big speech to the Muslim world and offers an open hand and says he's going to do all of these things differently and then it becomes clear he wants to pivot to Asia and kind of get out of the Middle East so he puts all of his chips on an Iran nuclear deal and all of that happens and then Donald Trump comes in and he can cancels the Iran deal and he pulls out of the Paris Climate Accord and completely shifts direction and starts talking about withdrawing from NATO of all things. You know, and also one week he's threatening to rain nuclear hellfire down on North Korea. And then, you know, a few months later, he and Kim Jong-un are best friends and and exchanging love letters. And then Joe Biden comes in and he reverses a lot of that stuff and starts talking to Iran again to restart that old deal. And now, you know, now we're pulling out of Afghanistan after Obama had had a surge in Afghanistan. And now we've done all this stuff like the AUKUS deal in Asia to combat China. And then we come up and we stand up to the line with Ukraine. And, and now it looks like in the middle of the Biden administration that we might cut off aid to Ukraine in the middle of the Biden administration because Congress isn't with him on this. And you have Donald Trump saying he has no interest in sticking with Ukraine at all and uh, is interested in perhaps pulling out of NATO uh, even more resolutely than he said in the first place. This is bigger than just Ukraine. Ukraine is kind of where I think these wild swings of policy focus are coalescing in the present moment, which is that the United States clearly does not know what it wants to do in the world. And from election to election, and as we're now seeing within the scope of the four years of the Biden administration, we sort of flip from one thing to another, and we're not sticking with what we say we're going to do. And that is a message that I think tells the rest of the world, like, you know, America is checked out. They cannot be relied on. They say they're going to do something and then they sort of slink away because a large enough chunk of the American people and then the parties that represent and channel that public opinion are deeply divided on these questions. And nothing good can come of this when it comes to the stature of the United States on the world stage. It's one thing to say say American global leadership is essential. And I agree with that, but it's also the case that it's not just what we sometimes say, but it has to be what we do, our follow through and our sticking with it through rough times, you know, good times and bad. And of course, the the backdrop to some of this is also the apparent 
lack of cogency to the Ukraine counteroffensive. And, uh, you know, Biden put, put a lot of emphasis on the importance of that, and it, it hasn't really turned up very much. And there was some reporting this week on uh, pretty deep disagreements between the Ukrainian military and our advisors about how to proceed there. And that's a sure sign of backbiting and people in the Pentagon being pretty pissed off that it's turned out the way it has. And again, not a good sign. Uh, well, that is true. I would just note, this is per David French, he notes that Russia has had tremendous losses in this war. Apparently, roughly 315,000 troops have either been killed or injured. And to put that number in perspective, the entire pre-war army, Russia's entire pre-war army consisted of 360,000. So that is a tremendous blow to a country that is seen by many as certainly a rival and perhaps an enemy of ours. But also, Damon, I'll answer the question that I posed to you, which is, if Ukraine loses, that is a victory for China, which is ironic considering how much Republicans bloviate about how they really are concerned about China's rise and China's potential threat to America. You know, obviously, it would also be a victory for Iran, for Hamas, for Hezbollah, and other bad actors around the world and other aggressors. So anyway, that's where we are. Let's turn now to what else the Congress is doing, because, you know, as they are busily not giving aid to Ukraine and not reforming the asylum system... They have formally begun impeachment proceedings against President Biden. And Representative Dave Joyce of Ohio, who's a Republican and a former prosecutor, uh, was asked about this on a TV show, asked about formalizing it. And the uh, interviewer said, well, you're a former prosecutor. What exactly is the high crime or misdemeanor that's being investigated? And he said, well, yeah, that's a good point. And I haven't seen any of that today, but I'm looking forward to the investigative committees. So, Megan, is this a simple matter of payback? Trump wanted to have his two impeachments expunged, which isn't really a thing. But uh, there are lots of Republicans who feel that because they, that is the Democrats, impeached Trump, that now they should impeach Biden, turn about his fair play. I'm not sure payback is exactly the right way to think about it. Look, the impeachment of Bill Clinton, right, was political as well as actual. I'm not justifying what he did uh, to a young intern who worked for him. That was an appalling abuse of his power. It was grotesque. And then he perjured himself under oath, right? So to some extent, he deserved to be punished for it. That said, like the Republicans would not have impeached a president of their own party who had done the same thing. So fast forward to Trump. And look, I think you guys know I am second to none in my dislike of Donald Trump. I did not support him in 2016. I did not support him in 2020. I thought he was a terrible, terrible president, possibly the worst president ever. And yet the first impeachment was kind of garbage. Not because, again, it's not that I am justifying what he did, but it was it was a little thin. 
and people were genuinely morally outraged, but that's not the same thing as proving that someone committed high crimes and misdemeanors, right? The second impeachment, and I think that actually became a problem because the second impeachment, they absolutely should have removed him from office and barred him from ever running again because he had obviously committed a high crime and misdemeanor against uh, the United States government. But that first one created a bad precedent. And now that bad precedent is, I think, going to mean that going forward, it is very likely that whenever the other party controls the lower house, the president can expect to be impeached. There was just a norm violation there that I don't think you can unring that bell. I think we're probably heading that way anyway. What is the offense that Biden... What was what was Trump's offense? Being a jerk? No, attempting to corrupt the 2020 election by forcing... No, no, that's the second. No, no, it's the first. Attempting to corrupt the 2020 election by drumming up a false accusation against his chief political opponent. I do not think they had the goods during the first impeachment. They did have the goods during the second impeachment, but they didn't wait. All he wanted was for Zelensky to announce an investigation and he would do the rest. No, he's (laughs) gross, right? I'm not saying he's not gross. I'm not saying that he doesn't defile his office. He absolutely did. If you're actually going to remove a president, right? And I don't think you should impeach someone unless you were really quite serious about trying to remove him. You need a bright line offense that we Mm -hmm. all agreed was an offense and no one else got Mm -hmm. away with doing before. And do I think that other presidents didn't maybe get away with putting some pressure on foreign governments in order to help them? Like not in the dumb way that Donald Trump did because he's a moron. It was less of a bright line and you needed a bright line. They didn't wait until they could draw a bright line as they could have on January 6th. And look, I agree. What are you going to impeach Joe Biden for other than being a Democrat? Nothing. I mean, this is dumb. I think the Hunter Biden stuff is sleazy. I don't know. Like, I'm not entirely clear that Biden is cleared on it, although I think it's very unlikely he wasn't he was involved. But they don't have any evidence and they shouldn't be opening an investigation without evidence. We're on an agreement on that. I just think that, like, part of the thing and this is why Trump was so dangerous. Is that maintaining norms means kind of building a wall around the thing you're trying to protect and not ever even getting near the thing you're trying to protect. And Democrats did not do that. Republicans, uh, you know, we can argue about whether they did it with Clinton in 96, but they were talking about impeaching Obama, right? I mean, this is this is just how things have been heading. And I think Trump accelerated it, but I think possibly we're going there anyway. But I, I just think that in this case, This is just what we're looking at going forward. It's going to be garbage impeachments all the way down. It's tremendously unhealthy for the country, but I don't really see a way back. Okay. Linda, this week, the special counsel, Jack Smith, filed a writ of certiorari before judgment to the Supreme Court, asking them to leapfrog over the Court of Appeals and rule on a very important question, namely whether Trump has immunity, as he claims, for all acts committed while he was president, including possible criminal acts. And he also made another argument. I don't think this is the one that is also going to be decided, but he also claimed that to prosecute him would violate the double jeopardy protections of the Fifth Amendment because he has already been impeached. And wasn't convicted, right? And and not convicted, so this would be double jeopardy. But anyway, we can talk about that in a minute. What is your sense about this? I have great confidence that the Supreme Court will 
bat this away. What do you think? I absolutely do. In fact, I would not be surprised if it were an eight to one or a nine to zero vote. It's not just that the president can't be prosecuted for something that he did in terms of his official duties. But this is basically saying he's just immune from criminal prosecution and for life, I guess, for something that he was done during his term in office, including, as he famously said when he was running the first time, I could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and nothing would happen to me. And I mean, you know, he could get rid of Ivanka. He could get rid of Melania uh, in the White <laughs> the White House and then never be prosecuted for it, even after he left office. As David Frum pointed out on the Bulwark podcast this week, it would also mean that the vice president could walk into the Oval Office and shoot yeah. the president and promptly or claim that he yeah, is immune. Right, right. Yeah. And then pardon himself, <laughs> pardon himself yeah. and claim that he's yeah, well, immune, he'd have, he'd immune to, from prosecution. He'd have prosecution. to be sworn in first, but it might yeah. not get sworn in yeah. if he did right, that. Right, but, right. Yeah, but the point is, it's <laughs> ridiculous. And do I think it was a smart move on Jack Smith's part? Absolutely. Look, It is absolutely crucial that there is a trial before the election, at least one trial. And I think that the January 6th charges are very serious. We're not going to get into the case that's challenging one of the laws that's being used, uh, one of the indictments against Trump, but also one that has convicted uh, many of the January 6th rioters having to do with interrupting an official proceeding uh, of Congress or having interfered, corruptly interfered with an official proceeding. But I think we're going to have to have at least a trial, and hopefully there'll be a conviction. And I am still, you know, praying with, you know, my praying to St. Jude as a Catholic, you know, Catholics will understand that, uh, the, the, uh, the patron saint of uh, hopeless causes, uh, that, you know, that he'll be convicted and that it will change the hearts of even some MAGA followers. So I think it was a smart move. I think the Supreme Court shows every evidence of, of being willing to take this on, you know, an expedited consideration, not even waiting necessarily for the appeals court. And they've been doing this more recently in other cases over the last five years or so. Yeah. And when uh, Trump argued in um, Trump v. Vance, this is when Cyrus Mm -hmm. Vance was the prosecutor in New York, uh, he tried to quash a subpoena from Cyrus Vance and said that any criminal process that touched the president was unconstitutional. And the right. Supreme Court voted uh, against him on that. And they voted yeah. against him on these election cases and on a number of other uh, matters. So, And by the way, Justice Kavanaugh has written a very long and scholarly uh, law review article that deals with some of these issues having to do with presidential uh, immunity, some of which you could just grab from that article and could be issued yeah, in, in the decision. Um, so Damon, arguably, the judiciary has been the institution in our society that has uh, held up the best under the onslaught of our nihilistic age and, you know, the combined effects of Trumpism and, you know, extreme partisanship. The courts have done very well. What's your sense of how they will handle this and how it will affect 2024? Well, I don't think we should put too much faith in these proceedings getting rid of our Donald Trump problem because the Donald Trump problem is a political problem. 
And we can know this by the very fact that we can imagine him convicted in every single trial on every single charge, and at least imagine that he would still win the office of the presidency. The outcomes in these trials will affect public opinion, but the question is how much. And in the end, it is public opinion that is going to determine the political fate of this man. It certainly will be interesting if he actually gets convicted of some of these major felonies, especially in the January 6th case, and then actually wins the presidency, like, part way toward preparing to serve a sentence. That would be so unprecedented in American history that does Jack Smith take an appeal to the Supreme Court and say this shouldn't be allowed, and on what basis, and what it boggles the mind. And it's at moments like that that I thank heavens I'm not a lawyer. It is true, we shouldn't be surprised that our legal processes have held up well in the sense that, well, what is liberalism? What is liberal democracy as a form of government? If it's anything, it is a commitment to not focusing as much on what the government does as how it does it. Procedure matters. It's not the whole of liberalism, but it it's the how. So can we throw the bastard who was president for four years in jail? Well, we can, but if we're going to do it, we have to do it carefully. We have to, we have an investigation that will take time. It has to be careful. We have to make specific charges under the law in light of precedent in all kinds of ways and its implications. And then there will be those charges and there will be a judge overseeing the charges and the trial and there will be a jury called and there will be opportunities for Trump's side to question which jurors should be allowed and there will be a trial and then there will be a verdict and then there will be appeals. That's one reason why you know, I question how it's going to affect the election because we're not just waiting for verdicts, then Trump is going to appeal and those will take time. And so this isn't going to be settled, I think, in any of these cases completely through the process of appeal before next November. But that's a, a side note. The important thing, again, is that if you're going to do something, best you do it carefully according to generalizable laws that should apply to any American citizen all of whom have certain innumerable rights. And that is happening. This potentially most powerful man in the country is now in the midst of multiple uh, trials and processes. And as long as they are conducted fairly and according to regular rule, then if they are legitimate and should be considered legitimate to any fair-minded observer. And we should take some pride in that. Yes. Sometimes these lawyers make arguments that are just laughable on their faces. And one of them is this argument that because Trump was impeached, that it would be double jeopardy for him to face criminal prosecution. Here's the exact language in the impeachment clause. Judgments in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Unquote. That's not even arguable what that means. It's as clear as a bell. All right. 
Bill Galston, I wanted to ask you about another subject, which is the war between Israel and Gaza um, is provoking a tremendous amount of internal dissent within the Biden administration. Some of the staffers of the White House went so far as to hold a protest outside the White House calling for a ceasefire, which I regard as a firing offense, honestly. I mean, if you disagree with the president's policy, you should resign and go do something else. Protest your own president like that. I don't know what you think, but I think that's just beyond the pale. But I wanted to ask you about a survey that was published this week by the Palestine Center for Policy and Survey Research. It had some pretty dispiriting numbers. This was a poll of of Palestinians on the West Bank and in Gaza. So a total of 60% thought Hamas should stay in charge, but that was 75% of those who live in the West Bank, but only 38% of those who live in the Gaza Strip. Only 16% chose uh, PA National Unity Government under Abbas, and 2% selected the Israeli army. I wouldn't sell them life insurance if anybody found out who who they were. But anyway, uh, Bill, you know, you know, in this age of uh, having the world at your fingertips on your phone, having information available, it seems that uh, people are no better informed than they ever were and maybe worse. Well, maybe so. They know what they think. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I follow the Israeli press pretty closely. And I also look at Palestinian public opinion polls, including the one you just cited. And I think I can say without fear of contradiction that October 7th and its aftermath have radicalized both the Israeli population and the Palestinian population. Yeah. And uh, we are, uh, at least at this moment, farther away from a resolution of this controversy than we have been in decades. Now, I suppose you could have said that in the month after the Yom Kippur War, and look what happened after that. And I have no doubt about the fact that once the dust settles on this war, there will be renewed international efforts, and I'm sure renewed American efforts, to think more structurally about a resolution to this controversy that has raged since 1948 and it's in its current form since 1967. But right now, passions are red hot on both sides, or white hot, perhaps it would be better to say. And there was a very interesting exchange just yesterday in the Israeli press having to do with the Gaza prisoners who'd been stripped Mm -hmm. and and, uh, by some accounts humiliated uh, by the IDF. And one commentator said, you don't understand. For Israelis, October 7th was a national humiliation. And part of their response is going to be revenge through humiliation of the other. That's where we are. I have devoted a lot of my scholarly energies recently to the subject of what I call dark passions in politics. And we are in a moment, certainly in the Middle East, but not only in the Middle East, where dark passions are dominating not only reason, but even self-interest rightly understood. 
all I can do is sit here and pray for a time when passion's cool, and we may perhaps be able to make progress on some of these hitherto intractable controversies, but not now. Yeah, it's a reminder that even when things can look placid on the surface, that these roiling passions are never really that far from being expressed. So, you know, just on October 5th, let us say, it was looking more likely than not that Israel was about to have a breakthrough following along the Abraham Accords, which uh, where Israel made peace with a bunch of uh, Arab countries. And it had already made peace with Jordan and Egypt and many of its previous adversaries. And then, you know, it looked like Saudi Arabia was going to join that club. And it looked as if the Palestinians would eventually have to make their peace with Israel's existence and that there would be some resolution to that problem and uh, that things were looking up for the region. And then overnight, we got to this horrible pass where nobody can imagine, at least for the present, Nobody can imagine a two-state solution and where the fierceness and the brutality is off the charts. Uh, Let me give way to a moment of of optimism here, Mona. Sure. And that is, I think it's noteworthy that first, none of the Arab and Muslim participants in the Abraham Accords have repudiated them. That's true. They must be under enormous pressure to do so. They haven't. Secondly... I think there are all sorts of signs that the Saudis have not given up on a longer-term reconciliation with the existence of Israel. And that is in the long-term interests of both Israel and Saudi Arabia. And uh, I don't think the Saudi crown prince is in a mood right now to give up on that prospect, even though clearly the timing and the tone and perhaps even the content of a conceivable agreement with Israel have all been changed by October 7th and its aftermath. Right. Okay. Thank you. Let's turn now to another topic. Megan, you wrote a piece that uh, I think was very stimulating called, Does the World Need More Jerks? And the headline doesn't quite explain what you were talking about. So why don't you elaborate on what you meant? So I think that we are, you would, I am going to get a lot of pushback for this, I know. I think we are in science and journalism often suffering from an epidemic of niceness. And I think that this is a problem because sometimes you have to ask questions that make people upset if you want to get at the truth, because the universe isn't here to please us, unfortunately. Everything that we would like to be true isn't. And some of the people who you may upset are marginalized groups. In the example I gave, was that Larry Summers, the economist who was president of Harvard in 2005, was forced to resign because he was invited to give a talk at a small seminar where he was asked to talk about the shortage of women in elite STEM. And he offered three hypotheses, ranked them. He said he thought the biggest reason was just that the 10-year clock just does not work with the biology of having kids. And he said, you know, we could think about doing more with childcare or stopping tenure clocks, et cetera. 
The second reason he offered, however, was a doozy. And he said, look, I think maybe the variance of female ability, mathematical ability primarily, is lower than that of male ability. But if you look at male and female IQs, they're, they're equal. And if you look at male and female scores on mathematical tests, the average is not that different. Men score on average a little higher than women. But if you look at the tails of the distribution, what you see is that women are more clustered around the middle and men are on both ends. So you have more men who are, and this is true of IQ, this is true of a bunch of stuff. Men just tend to be more variable than women on almost everything. So you get a bunch of men, for example, more men suffer from mental retardation. You have more men at the bottom of the mathematical ability distribution. You have more men at the very, very tippy top. And as you get out to the extreme, you know, 0.01% where Harvard is recruiting its math department from, for example, those differences are going to show up in having a lot fewer available female candidates. And not none, just fewer. Yeah, not none, just fewer. And then he said, and then there's the third explanation is discrimination. And I think that is the least of the impacts here. I also think of, for example, when Kevin Williamson, the journalist, who's often quite pungent, he puts things a little more strong than I, I, he ended up getting hired and then quickly fired by the Atlantic because he had said that he believed in the death penalty for abortion. To be clear, I disagree strenuously with Kevin, but, you know, colleagues at the at the Atlantic were like, how can I sit in a room with him? It was like, what do you think he's going to do? Start erecting a gallows? Like, you know, you're a journalist. You have to sit. And, and Jeff Goldberg, who was the editor at the time, his initial response was kind of like, look, I, I'm a Jewish guy who was out interviewing terrorists who literally wanted to kill me for who I was, right? I sort of didn't understand the question, but ultimately had to let go of Kevin under pressure from the staff. And I think this kind of thing of like, I don't want to hear this thing, therefore this person can't be here. That was an early bellwether incident. I think it has shaped the behavior of university administrators ever since. And I think we saw that with the the Harvard and, and MIT and Penn presidents hearing where like they could not articulate a forthright, no holds barred support for free expression because that's not where the university is now. And I think it's showing up in things like papers on sensitive issues of race or gender or sexuality that are getting retracted, not because there's something wrong with the paper, but because there's activist pressure. And I should say, you know, there will be, oh, well, there was this little thing or that little thing, but it's a little thing that if the paper had gone the other way would not in any way have persuaded anyone the paper needed to be retracted, right? You know, and science papers, they may have small issues, but that doesn't, they don't get retracted unless basically your findings are completely false. That stuff, it's making science bad. People are self-censoring. And so the upshot of the column was I quoted this recent perspective from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences saying that like, look, censorship, we think of it as this bad thing and therefore something that's only done from bad motives and is coming from outside authorities like the government. And I think with campus speech and with other free speech issues, you always hear this, right? It's like, well, the government wasn't doing it, therefore it's fine. And in fact, you know, you can do something from good motives and still have a bad effect. And I think when you have the knowledge seeking industries that are afraid to ask questions or to get certain answers about some of the most sensitive and important questions society has to settle. That's dangerous. It's dangerous, first of all, because, you know, you are not getting at the truth. And I think, call me an idealist, but I think over time, believing in lies just hurts you. 
it's dangerous, second, because it undercuts the credibility of the institution. I think we saw this a lot during the pandemic as the best example, the way that public health institutions had been so clearly politicized and were so clearly, for example, you know, it was suicide to go to church. But if you were protesting the death of George Floyd, that was going to that was good. And you should do that. Right. That that stuff was absolutely devastating for the credibility of institutions that needed all the credibility they could get. And that that attitude over time, you know, it sort of undercuts, even if you get the right answer, no one's going to listen to it because they don't believe in the process anymore. Um, And so what I want is to make journalism and academia a safer space for the kind of person who just says what they think, even if it's going to make people upset. You can't have the, they can't be made up of all people like that. You need diplomats. It's chaos if everyone's like that. But I think that over time, for HR reasons, for you know, kind of council culture reasons, it's getting harder and harder to be one of those people at all. And that's really, really dangerous because groupthink is so easy to fall into. Confirmation bias is so easy to fall into. And having that person who's just like, wait a minute, I think that's just wrong. They're incredibly valuable to the process. And we are making it too hard for them to survive in the very areas where we need them most. A hundred percent agree. And think this is, um, it really is an assault on the whole enlightenment project, right? Because the enlightenment and the scientific method were all about being willing to test ideas and get at the truth. And in order to test, you have to be willing to entertain a hypothesis that you don't like. And uh, in my book, Sex Matters, where I talked about some differences between men and women, I noted that a number of people, a number of scientists who had looked into this research had been warned off it by their superiors saying, you know, this is not good for your career. This is this this can be a career ender. You know, do something else. Do anything else, but don't get into sex differences. Nobody wants to hear that. Well, nobody may want to hear it, but it happens to be the truth. And if you are at war with the truth, nothing good can come of that. I give the more much more recent example of Carol Hooven who was an instructor at Harvard, and she wrote a book called T, which is all about testosterone. She had done research out in in Africa, looking at chimpanzees and their behavior. And, uh, you know, it's a very learned book, all about the role of testosterone in mammals, including humans. You know, she is very uh, liberal, and she has very enlightened views about sexuality, about homosexuality, about trans people, about all of that. But her sin was to say that some traits are biological and that biologists all agree that there are two sexes and only two sexes. I mean, it's hard to find a biologist who would make the other case. Uh, there are, you know, there are people who fall somewhere in between. That's true. And, but that is very, very rare and uh, doesn't comprise another sex. There are just two sexes, male and female in the mammal world. Anyway, she felt pressured, Carol Hooven, she felt pressured to leave to leave Harvard. She wasn't fired, but it became an unwelcoming work environment. And that is uh, that is incredibly illiberal and uh, and unhelpful for uh, for a healthy society. Does anybody else want to weigh in on this? 
I'm just going to weigh in and say the only problem I had with uh, Megan's article is that the people who are jerks are not the people who are willing to speak the truth. The people who are jerks are those who try to insist uh, that their feelings are, are going to get hurt. So I, I, I think she just named the wrong <laughs> jerks. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Fair I should enough. also, if I may, Mona, yeah, please. You know, add that we should not be surprised if you go all the way back to John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, you will find there that he is much more afraid of the repressive impact of public opinion on freedom of thought than he is on the impact of the law on freedom of thought. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think he's, I think, you know, just empirically, he's absolutely right. If you look at contemporary America, there are many more people who are afraid of public opinion, including the, the opinion of their peers, than they are of government suppression of speech. Yep, well said. All right, we will now turn to the highlight or low light of the week, and we will start with our guest, Megan McArdle. Uh, low light of the week is another round of protesters blocking, uh, blocking traffic and getting filmed, uh, getting into a brawl with the drivers. I think this tactic is so inexpressively dumb. It is literally the equivalent of a toddler tantrum. It gets you attention at the expense of getting what you want. And I think more broadly, looking at various protest tactics that we have seen you know, I stood up for the right of students at Harvard, MIT and Penn to chant, you know, there is only one solution Intifada revolution and from the river to the sea, they have free speech rights to chant it. But how on earth could anyone with any knowledge of the Holocaust use a slogan with the word solution in it in talking about this issue? It is just insanely tone deaf. And the fact that it rhymes with revolution is the dumbest possible reason to choose a chant. And I think that this speaks to a protest culture that has come to focus entirely on getting attention rather than on getting results. Yes, and they get attention at the expense of getting sympathy. Yes, they, they actively alienate the people who they should be trying to persuade. It's incredibly counterproductive. It is protest for the sake of enjoying yourself. And I know I can, I can see the movie that is running in their head, the music swelling as they, as they like run down the street, but no one else in the country is watching the same movie except for you. And those are the people, if you actually want to change us foreign policy towards Israel, Palestine, it's the, the rest of the country, not the movie in your own head that matters. Thank you. Damon Linker. Ah, yes. Politics by slogan. We got a lot of that these days. Uh, well, my my uh, highlight, and yes, it's actually a highlight, everyone. Very unusual for me. This week, Congress passed a $886 billion bill funding the Pentagon. Um, but a, a little noted provision within this bill uh, as actually a dart aimed right in Donald Trump's eye, and I'm very delighted to hear about it, which is that this provision states that any potential future president who wishes to withdraw the United States from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization must first 
inform Congress, and then after a specified amount of time, Congress must pass, or at least I guess the Senate must pass uh, a bill authorizing it by a two-thirds majority, which, you know, we've been through a pretty rocky period in our history, and we're still in the middle of it. So, you know, all bets are off for what could happen in the future. But I will say it would take a, a pretty big sea change in Congress for something like that to pass. That's a very high threshold. It's as high a threshold as convicting a president for impeachment, and we haven't seemed to accomplish that yet either. So, I mean, this is, I think, a very, and I, I will give a tip of the hat to uh, Senator Marco Rubio for spearheading this and putting it into this bill, which Biden is expected to sign. Uh, it's a very good uh, example. Well, it's a, it's a good thing in and of itself to prevent Trump from doing something as catastrophically stupid as trying to unilaterally withdraw from NATO. But uh, as as a, an indication of the kind of things we need to be doing as we face the potential of Trump winning again in 11 or so months, uh, which is uh, kind of uh, stealing ourselves uh, in all kinds of ways to the damage that he can do. So uh, good job on that one. Okay, Linda Chavez. Good job indeed. And uh, that, that really was a highlight. Well, I have a, an unusual item that's both a low light and a highlight, and it has nothing to do with politics. I'm going once again to culture this week. Uh, we lost one of the great actors of our time this week, a man named Andre Brower, who was the star of uh, the series Homicide Life on the Streets, which was a David Simon production 30 years ago, 1993 it appeared. It went for six seasons. It is a tragedy that Andre Brower uh, is dead at the age of 61. He was a stage actor. I first saw him in 1990 on the Shakespeare Theater Company stage playing Iago in Othello. Just a wonderful man. But the highlight is that I would recommend if people are looking for a gift for the season, you could do no better than buying a box set of Homicide Life on the Streets. And if you missed it in the 1990s, it is one of the finest series that was ever on broadcast television. And you will get a chance to see Andre Brower and uh, his magnificent performance as uh, Detective Frank Pembleton uh, in that series. Thank you. Bill Galston. Well, continuing this upswing in our collective mood, I actually have two highlights. First, just drop a footnote to the cheerful uh, note that uh, Damon introduced into the proceedings. I am not 100% sure that the bill that Damon cited will be found constitutional if it's challenged. Uh, I do expect if Trump is reelected and it becomes an issue that there will be a big legal hoo-ha about this. Now for my two highlights. First of all, I frequently disagree with Steven Pinker, but in an article that he just published in the Boston Globe entitled How to Save Harvard from Itself, he hit the nail on the head with five recommendations as to policy changes that Harvard should make and announce and adhere to that would enable future Harvard presidents and administrators to hew a much more consistent and honorable course. 
My second highlight is a survey that came out from the Pew Research Center while we have been talking. And I think that it sheds a very interesting light on one of the underlying attitudinal issues within the Republican Party. The survey looked at Republicans and divided them into supporters of Trump for the presidential nomination, supporters of Ron DeSantis, and supporters of Nikki Haley. And, you know, the party as a whole is split right down the middle on the following question. Do you think that you should pick a Republican candidate who's interested in finding common ground with Democrats on policies, even if it means giving up some things Republicans want, or pushing hard for policies Republicans want, even if it makes it much harder to get some things done? As I said, the party was split down the middle, but 63% of the Trump supporters said that they favored a candidate who would push hard for Republican policies and not focus on finding common ground with Democrats. By contrast, 72% of Nikki Haley's supporters preferred finding common ground with Democrats, even if it meant giving up on policies the Republicans favor. Uh, and I think there you have it in a way. There are many Republicans who simply want to fight with liberals and with Democrats. They don't want to give an inch. And there are other Republicans, uh, less numerous but not inconspicuous, who really have an older idea of what successfully governing in a diverse constitutional republic requires. Thank you. All right. So, Damon, you stole my highlight. I was going to mention that, too. So I would just add a footnote, but leaving aside, you know, Bill's question as to whether it might not survive a challenge. But uh, but I would say next up should be uh, reforming the Insurrection Act, which gives the president a lot of uh, unreviewable authority. So that might be something that the Congress and the president should get right on next. But uh, I did notice that, too, and thought that was a very healthy development. But since you've already mentioned it, I would like to make a public service announcement. But it requires that I tell a short story first. I had friends visiting from out of town a few weekends ago, and we started out our day on Saturday by taking a long walk with my dog. Uh, we went to various neighborhoods and parks and let the dog off the leash for a little while so he could get some of his energy out and we brought him back home and we all went off to the uh, a museum in the afternoon when we got home in the evening the dog was acting very strange for one thing there was water all over the floor of the house and we couldn't understand it and we thought is it coming from the dog's water dish no actually it turned out the dog was having an episode of incontinence well, that seemed alarming. We thought, does he have some sort of urinary tract infection? We bundled the dog off to the emergency vet. And what do we find out? The dog was high. Okay. The dog had somehow picked up a joint and eaten it. And marijuana is toxic to dogs, it turns out. And it gives them a, a whole series of symptoms, including incontinence and vomiting. And sure enough, later that night, yeah, we, we experienced that part of it. So while this was very funny in the moment, we have to say, uh, finding out that your dog is stoned, 
And of course, he's fine. He was fine after 12 hours. He slept it off. But people should be careful. Like, I know marijuana is legal everywhere now, and people are pretty casual about what they do with their pot when they're finished smoking it. Uh, But anyway, please don't drop it on the ground because now you know it's very harmful to dogs. And I have a huge bill from the emergency vet from that day. So that is my public service announcement. (laughs) All right. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Megan McArdle, our regular panel, of course, as well as our producer, Jim Swift, our sound engineer, Jonathan Seary, and our wonderful listeners. And we will return next week as every week. 